So today we're going to talk about the fact that the Bible is inerrant, and with that conversation, it's going to lead into some questions about interpretation, because it could be completely true and inerrant in every way, but if we interpret it incorrectly, it doesn't really matter. So we have to talk about that as well. Uh, and then we're also going to talk a little bit about the fact that the Bible is authoritative. If it's inerrant, which we'll talk about what that means, then it means it's also authoritative. Uh, which means we live under its authority. So we have to discuss that and think about that a little bit. Uh, so on page 16 is where we're going to start. But if you don't mind, let me just pray for us before we jump in. Yes, for the Lord's help. Father, we are here because we love you. We want to grow in our knowledge of you, uh, of your word. So guide us, guide the teacher, guide the hearts. Uh, allow us to discuss and to think and to really just move us forward in growing in you and getting to know you better, really being for the gospel and for the city. In Christ's name, amen. So on page 16, at the top there in quotes, it says, talking about inerrancy, it says, inerrancy means that when all the facts are known, the scriptures in their original autographs and properly interpreted will be shown to be wholly true in everything they affirm whether that has to do with doctrine or morality or social, physical, or life sciences. Okay, so that's when we say inerrant, that's what we mean by the word inerrant. Uh, some of this is going to be a review of last week. We have no original autographs, okay? Even though Matt speaks so well from the pulpit, he doesn't get to use the stone tablets that God wrote on when he preaches on the Ten Commandments. I don't have access to Paul's actual handwritten letters. None of us do. They no longer exist as far as we know. So the question is, what are we holding in our hands? We talked about this last week. God took us through this transmission process where we went from the words that were written on pages to the words that we have in our hands. And it was careful. It was well done. It was meticulous. We see God's hand on the process throughout the totality of that process <laughs> to what we have today. Uh, transmission was often considered sacred and central to God's people. The scribes went out of their way with strict rules to make sure it was done correctly. When it came to picking which books went into this Bible, there were multiple church councils that took place to make sure we had the right books, uh, that they were true and accurate, that these are the right 66 books. We know that there's variations in some of the, in some of the texts because we have different texts you know, from different centuries and different areas, but we've gone through the variations and the variants. We can see which ones make sense. The text that we use, the text that we have, we believe are God's words. We stand on that with faith. Uh, we're excited to say that this book is a miraculous book that has its own standard. Like there's no other book on the planet like this one in terms of how it was put together and the beauty and the meticulous nature in which it was done. So we stand with faith and confidence on the words that we have. Do you need to know Hebrew and or Greek to really know your Bible? Do you need to know Hebrew and Greek to really know your Bible? What do you think? So you guys are shaking your heads, but you're not talking. That's a no. Does it help at all to know Greek or Hebrew? Okay, so it's helpful, um, but not necessary. I would agree with you. I would suggest you really need to know English. <laughs> I know it sounds goofy, but like you really need to know English. Like if you don't understand what the therefore is there for, or how the but fits into the conversation, uh, those little words can change everything about how you understand a passage. So you really need to know English. In fact, one of my, f the 
my favorite things about learning Greek was I had to learn more about English. When we started talking about participles and direct objects and indirect objects and modifying phrases in the Greek, I had to make sure I understood that in English before I could understand it in the Greek. So it made my English better, which is actually really helpful for me in terms of teaching and preaching. So you really do need to know English. We preached on the Great Commission not that long ago. We talked about in those couples, those couple sentences that there's several different words that look like in the English that they could be an imperative or the main verb, baptizing, go, making, teaching. What is nice is in the Greek, you can tell right away because of the form of the verb, which one was the imperative. So sometimes it is helpful. I would also say this, it's helpful if you want to use a commentary to know a little bit about those languages because it's easier to use those commentaries. I'm gonna tell you a secret though. Are you ready for this? I'm gonna tell you a secret. Even if you don't know the language at all, this little resource right here will give you all you need to know about the Greek language. It's all you need. Look how gross that, that is. <laughs> I've sweat over this thing. The bottom, I've actually put that in my backpack and that's because I put it on a banana. So that's not sweat. Uh, banana actually rotted to the bottom of the book and I had to pull it off. This though is sweat. That's banana. But <clears throat> in this book, what it does is it It'll have the text in English, and then above it is a, is a number. Have you ever heard of the Strong's Concordance? Okay, most of you have. So the numbers in here are the same numbers as used in the Strong's Concordance. And then you can flip back, and you look up the number, and you can see every time this is used in the New Testament, you also get a definition of the Greek word that that word is. Boom. I mean, it's like it's right there. So it's a really useful, helpful, insightful book. And if it's talking about a verb or a participle and you're not sure what it is, there's a couple letters beside the number, and here's your little reference guide to let you know if it's a participle or a verb or a noun or how it functions. So it's just this one book, you will know as much as the average Greek scholar who sits down and works through the Greek. You just have to do a little, put a little bit more work into it, which means you'll have brown pages also. Okay, but this guy by a guy named Spiros Zodiades. This is worth your investment. If you're just not sure about something, you pull this thing out. It's very, very helpful, okay? So, no, you don't need to know the Greek or Hebrew, but it does help, and with the right tools, you have access to it just like any Greek or Hebrew scholar does. What is the difference between our present-day translations? We talked a little bit about this last week, but let's just go over these again. So, we have some that are a word for word translation. Do you guys remember what those are? Anybody? You've got your New American Standard, your NASB, your King James. Whoa, wrong letter. <laughs> your KJK, KJV, okay? You have an ESV, which is kind of in between word for word and a phrase for phrase. Any idea what a popular phrase-by-phrase phrase Bible would be? Translation? You probably have one in your hand. The NIV. Okay, that would be one. Uh, also up here, you could probably put the NRSV, New Revised Standard Version. Uh, NIV, and then we have Thought for Thoughts. Thoughts for Thoughts. And this would be your New Living Translation, which I heard somebody say. This would be the message. 
and a few others. Okay, so that's kind of how they fall in line. Now, there's tons of other translations, but these will be the bulk of the major ones that are used in English, are these ones. How about the New King James? It would land up here. It could be KJV or NKJV. They're both up there. The NKJV just uses different Greek manuscripts to come up with their translation than the KJV does. It's just more up-to-date Greek, you know, Greek, Greek manuscripts. Um, okay, does that make sense? Now let me throw out some more information. The NASB is written on an 11th grade level. The KJV is a 12th grade level. The NIV is considered an 8th grade level. The New Living Translation is considered a 6th grade level. The message is considered a 5th grade level. <laughs> That's yours, Gary. Uh, so depending on who you're talking to, that might play into which translation you want them to have. I mean, if you're talking about one of your children, it might be easier for them to start with one of these. If it's a new believer who maybe doesn't love to read, maybe one of these. If you're sitting down with a college professor who just came to know Christ, you can probably throw whatever you want at them. They're going to be fine with it. So that helps. When it comes to which ones are most used, 40% of all Bibles that are sold in English are NIV. There's a lot of translations. 40% is huge. King James, not New King James, is 22%. Okay? Also a pretty good size number. Uh, the NASB is 4%. This is just interesting. This is really, you don't really need to know this. Um, I just found it interesting. Uh, the ESV barely even hits the numbers. Uh, the New Living Translation is 9%. Uh, I think the ESV was like 0.4%. Now, it's from a while ago, so maybe it's increased its market share. But some of these you know, are the ones that everyone tends to read. Some of these don't get read very often. Uh, the NRSV was actually a bigger one. I think it was, it was 10% of the market share. Does that mean the NIV is the best one? Is, are those what are sold or what are read? No, no, no. <laughs> sold. Sold. Market share, not which ones are most read. Does that mean the NIV is the best one because people buy the NIV more than any other one? No? It means that Zondervan's a pretty impressive company, doesn't it? Good advertising. Good advertising. Yeah. So part of it is, is the company behind it. But the NIV is the most, the most read one. It kind of does land in the middle, which I think is one of the reasons why it's so popular. And it is a solid translation for what it's supposed to be. So which translation is the best? Do you remember? We talked about this. Okay, so I get one vote for the NASB. It's according to what you're looking at for. It's why you're trying to use it, yeah. My, my answer would be is, it helps to read a little bit of all of them. And you have to know why you're reading. So if you're reading a word for word, then it's helpful sometimes to go down here and read some of this just to make sure that you're not just getting the right words, but you're getting the right thoughts. This is an interlinear translation right here. I'll use this one sometimes. This is, it has the Greek, in the right Greek word order, and then underneath it are the English words. Okay, so let's read from that. Um, not then you are the Egyptian, before these days, having raised a revolt, and having led out into the desert the 4,000 men of assassins, and said Paul, I, a man, am a Jew, Tarsus of Sicilia, not an insignificant city, a, cit a citizen, and I ask you, sounds like Yoda, right? 
Okay, so that's, that's why we don't do a strict word-for-word -word translation, because it wouldn't make sense to you, because it's hard to understand. So even with these word-for-word, -word, they're not word-for-word. -word. I just read you word-for-word. -word. Okay, so we try to take the word-for-word -word and put it in a way that actually sounds like English in the way we talk and the way we speak, which is very, very helpful. All right, study Bibles. What's the best study Bible out there? How do you pick which kind of Bible to buy? I'm just making up a question that's not in your book. What kind of Bible should you buy? Everyone's looking for it. It's so not just translation, but what kind of Bible should you buy? Large print. Large print. I can't argue with that. So if you know that you're not going to buy commentaries, if you know you're not going to look at resources, then getting a good study Bible kind of has all that together in it. I would suggest you buy one. Uh, there's lots of good ones. One of the newer ones that have come out is Zondervan has a new study Bible. A guy named D.A. Carson has put it together. It's excellent. It's an NIV study Bible by Zondervan. I've already bought a copy for multiple people. I really like it. There's other good ones. That's the one I would kind of lean on is the most up-to-date one. Um, there are different kinds of Bibles. So this is the one that I use. This is the opposite of a study Bible. It's, a, it's an only the text Bible. See, there's nothing at the bottom. There's not even any cross-references. It's just a single column, okay? And then what it does for me, it gives me room to make notes and to make outlines. And I use it, so it's still big. It looks like a study Bible, but it's not. It's just thicker paged with single columns. And these are really hard to find. So when I find one, I'll order two or three of them. And I'll just work through one. And then once I have one filled up, I just put it on my shelf and use it for notes, and I grab my next one and I fill it up. Does that make sense? So I usually have one for about two, three, four years, and I put it up and I get the next one, I just kind of work through it. So I get to redo it over and over again. Uh, if I'm sitting talking, if Matt's preaching, I would usually have this open, and I would take notes right into my Bible, because that way I have them all together. And then I can pick from any one of my Bibles throughout my history, and I can look at the notes of things that I've learned. I can use that to write sermons or studies or talk to my kids or talk to my neighbor about what I'm learning with particular verses and chapters and books. So you can go anywhere in between where it has a ton of information or it has no information. It just depends on what's best for you. But I'm sitting in an office, if you've been to my office, I have some books in there and I have a couple commentaries. So I can just go up to my shelf and look at my commentaries. You may not carry your commentaries with you. So maybe you need to have a study Bible. NIV. Yeah, we're an NIV church. Well, we were a New King James previously. And the problem is you got 15, 20 years of notes in the Bible yep. of all, all these sermons you've heard. Yeah. It's hard to switch. It's really hard. Did Matt ask you before he switched it? <laughs> he should have. He didn't ask you? Wow, okay. All right. A center reference? I like finding my own cross-references, but it's nice to have that. I just don't have that in this one. Some of them I do, some of them I don't. I actually create my own references. So I have, so like when I, I just do, sorry, I'm a geek, but like if you look in the, if you look on some of them, like if you ever see a cross, it means a cross-reference. I'll cross it and then I go back through my head, I try to find all my references and I'll cross-reference myself. It just helps me remember more. 
Like when people tease me, they're like, how do you know that? It's because I do goofy stuff like that. And over time, it starts to stick. So that's, yes, I, th I agree with you, but, I, but it's up to you. It's whatever stage of life you're in and how you want to push yourself. It's up to you. There's a lot of freedom there. Page 17. So when we talked about inerrancy, one piece of inerrancy is when it's properly understood. If it's not properly understood, it doesn't matter how correct it is, you don't understand it correctly or you're not teaching it correctly. So at the top there, um, it says beside those pictures, I don't even know who all those people are. I know Joel Olstein. Who's the guy on the far left? Is that Ernest? It could be. Oh, Peter Popoff. That's a perfect name. Don't send any of those people money. Okay, just, I'm just gonna say it. Don't send any of those people money. All right, without proper interpretation, the Bible will be misunderstood, misapplied, and even misused for personal gain. There is no authority. Only the potential for non-biblical application plays for power and possible abuse. There are many historical and present day examples. So here's some things just to always remember when you're reading God's word. The question you ask is not, what does this mean to me? That's not the question you ask. The question you ask is, what was the author trying to communicate and how did the recipients receive and understand what was said? So you have to know a little bit about the author, you have to know a little bit about the recipients to understand the message that's being communicated. That's really, really important. Otherwise, you can get confused um, and come up with a bad interpretation. Do you remember when we moved? So we moved some chairs in here. Did anyone notice that? Did anyone's heads explode? I mean, everyone's okay? Good. So downstairs, we moved some chairs at one point, and somebody actually said this out loud. I think it was in a letter. So you just tell me how this interpretation went. God does not change. God's word does not change. The chair setup should not change. <laughs> and that person's no longer with us. Because of the chairs? Yeah, well, that's his theology. God doesn't change, neither should the chairs. Was that good Bible interpretation? No. No? You don't think so? But people do that all the time. So when Malachi chapter 3, verse 6, when God, when God says, Thus saith the Lord, I, the Lord, do not change, we should not read into that, and that includes the chair setup in my local church. We can't read that into it. That wasn't the intention of the passage. We have to be really, really careful when we interpret. Here are some helpful tools at the bottom. Here's a Bible handbook that I love. And then this right here, Talk Through the Bible, just gives you some background information to authors and recipients. And then the handbook goes even deeper. So any of those three or all of those three are really useful tools. I still use them. I still like them. Let's go to genre on the next page. So when I say genre there, we're talking about literary genres. So it could be historical narrative, it could be poetry, it could be prophecy, it could be apocalyptic. There's lots of different literary genres in scripture. And each of those genres have their own particular set of rules and interpretive expectations. If you don't know what those are, you're not gonna get it right. So it's really important to know those and to understand those. We're not gonna go over all those today, though a lot of those are in that previous class that we took. I have a lot of rules in that how to study your Bible class. But let's talk about some examples. In Matthew 5, 29, he says, if your eye offends you, you should pluck it out. If you don't realize that he's using hyperbolic speech, which is exaggerated speech, it could be detrimental to your health, right? But all of you have two eyeballs, I think. So you realize that he was speaking hyperbolically. 
Okay, that's important for you to understand. If you don't understand that, you're chopping off hands, you're plucking out eyes. So it's good to know that. Uh, another example, let's, let's go to this. So let's go to the Old Testament. I think sometimes the Old Testament is very difficult to figure out when we use interpretation that's literal, when we use interpretation that's uh, figurative. So Habakkuk, or Habakkuk, however you like to say it, chapter 1, verse 8, is talking about the Chaldeans or the Babylonians. They're on their way. They're about to take out Israel. And in verse 8, he describes their horses. This is what he says. Their horses are swifter than leopards and keener than wolves in the evening. Their horsemen come galloping. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle swooping down to devour. Are their horses actually faster than leopards? Can they run 40? You know, what do leopards run like? 50 miles an hour? Are the horses running at over 50 miles an hour? Probably not. Are they actually swooping down? Will they be attacking from the air? No. Okay. But he's trying to make a point. Like, it's going to feel like that. It's going to feel like you're being overwhelmed. It's going to feel like they're faster than you. They're stronger than you. They're smarter than you. It's going to feel like they're coming from every direction, including from above. That's the point of the passage. So he's using figurative language to create a feeling inside of you that he wants you to understand. You are about to be overwhelmed by what is coming. So the figurative language is used intentionally with purpose to create a feeling. It's creating a, a clear thought, but also a feeling. But if you dig into the details, you'll be disappointed. They won't be faster than leopards. They're not horses with wings. Okay? Let's go to Isaiah for another example. Isaiah 11. And this one's a little bit harder. This is an in-between passage. There are some passages where I think we just need to say it could be figurative, it could be literal, and we can land in two different places, and it's okay. In chapter 11 of Isaiah, it's talking about Jesus. It says, Then a shoot will spring up from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. Okay, we all know that Jesus wasn't a plant, right? Okay, so he's using figurative language to describe this concept, this picture that Jesus is coming up from the root, from the genealogy of David. And it talks about the spirit of the Lord will rest on him. Um, it talks more and more about Jesus. And then in verse 6, okay, so before verse 6, there's some figurative language. Verse 6, it says, And the wolf will dwell with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the young goat. And the calf and the young lion and the fatling together and the little boy will lead them. Also the cow and the bear will graze. The young will lie down together. The lion will eat straw like an ox. Verses six and seven. I mean, is that what's literally going to happen? Maybe. Or it could be a way of just really expressing that there's going to be peace. That under this lordship of this one who is to come, that's from the root and the seed of Jesse and David, is going to reign in such a way that there is peace. Verses 8 and 9, the nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. They will not hurt or destroy in my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So here we see his kingdom will be peaceful, and his not, the knowledge of the Lord will be overwhelming. The world will know. Okay, so... Yeah, it's just hard. I just want to sit in a position where sometimes we say it could be literal or it could be figurative and one day we'll know. This is one of those. I mean, this really could happen. Like that could be the way the animals work together. 
in an age yet to come, or it could be more just him explaining, when I show up on the scene, there will be peace, I will be in power, I will rule, and the knowledge of me will cover the world as the waters cover the oceans. Okay, so I think sometimes we have to be in a position where we don't know for sure. We have to be okay with that. Uh, up at the top, a text can never mean what it never originally meant. A text can never mean what it never originally meant. So if you're going through the Old Testament and you're trying to find an interpretation or something that no one's ever found before, stop digging for that gold. It's fool's gold, okay? Don't ever try, if you hear someone say something that you've never heard quite the way they've said it before, there's probably a reason, okay? So you're never trying to find a new or unique interpretation. A text can never mean what it never originally meant. Biblical principles can be formed when there are present-day comparables to biblical texts and situations. Okay, let's just sum that up this way. There's a day coming when marijuana might be legal everywhere, including in West Virginia. Does that mean Christians should start smoking marijuana? The Bible doesn't say don't smoke marijuana, but are there principles in the Bible that would cause us to decide one way or another? Yes. What would those be? So yeah, so like one of the reasons why the Bible says don't get drunk is because we have a spirit of self-control and self-discipline. Okay, God's called us to that. That's how we're supposed to be characterized by. Well, I mean, I don't, I haven't spent a lot of time talking to people who smoke marijuana, but it sounds like that's not the way they're described. Okay, so we would want to have some... <laughs> that's different, yes. So recreationally, I'm not sure if we would ever, as Christians, say the state says it's okay, we think it's okay, go light a doobie. Okay, like I don't think we're ever going to get there. Um, so we have to think about principles that can be applied, even though it's not talking about a specific in our society or in our situation. This next one's really important. Words have meaning in sentences. Sentences have meanings in paragraphs. Paragraphs have meaning in sections. That's important. If you forget that, you're going to come up with some really weird ways of viewing things. Verses should not be taken out of their context. They are best understood in their historical context, in their genre, and in their literary context. We have to remember that as we're looking at verses. So, I'm going to pick on somebody here. Somebody's not going to like what I'm about to do. I'm going to do it on tape, so let's see how, see how this goes. So, in 1 Chronicles chapter 4, there's this dude named Jabez. Have you ever heard of Jabez? Ten years ago, you probably would have never heard of Jabez. But people made millions of dollars off the fact that you now know who Jabez is. It says this in verse 9, Jabez, Jabez was more honorable than his brothers, and his mother named him Jabez, saying, Because I bore him with pain. Verse 10, Now Jabez called on the God of Israel, saying, Oh, that you would bless me indeed and enlarge my border, and that your hand might be with me, and that you would keep me from harm, that it might not pain me. And God granted him what he requested. Verse 11, Chelub, the brother of Shunan, became the father of Meher, who was the father of Eshton. And then it continues forever with names like that. Before this, it's all names like that. There's this really little spot where all of a sudden he just talks about and highlights an individual in the chronological line of names. God answered Jabez's prayer. Is that a promise that everybody who prays that same prayer will receive the same answer from God? Is that a promise? Well, you just read it. God answered it. Is it not a promise? You can't claim that? There are some books that have been written that said maybe you can. 
okay? Or if you pray in this way with these same types of requests that you will get the same benefits that Jabez received. We have to be careful. This is a historical narrative, which means it's describing what happened. It's not prescribing what you should do. It's describing what already happened. If I can pray this prayer and get this just because I read that it happened to someone else, then I'm just going to tell you, Matt and I are heading down to like, we're going to find some huge building. We're going to walk around seven times. And then we're going to blow a trumpet and we're just watch that thing crumble, right? <laughs> hey, Joshua did it. And God responded this way. It should work the same way for us. But that's not how it works. Narratives are descriptive. They tell us what happened. Now, if verse 11 said, and everyone who trusts in God from here until the end of time prays this, who will receive these, this answer, then we say, okay. But it doesn't do that. It doesn't say that. The context is, this guy prayed it, God answered it, and they just kept on going. So we have to be careful not to claim things that aren't ours to claim. I lived in this world for a long time. First Chronicles 7.14. You guys remember that verse? So when I was in college, we kind of just got addicted to this verse. It talks about the fact that if we, if we humble ourselves and pray and seek God's face and turn from our wicked ways, that God will come and heal our land. It kind of became like a war cry for me and a bunch of people in the Christian movement I was involved with, the Campus Crusade. And we just trusted God to do that. Well, after about a year of praying for that, someone said, that verse has nothing to do with America or you. I said, what are you talking about? And I read it and I thought, oh yeah. So after like a whole year of like, like we did prayer services on this, like we spent so much time, I wrote Bible studies on how to do every single one of those things. Somebody just said, that's a promise for Israel. Like if Israel did that, at that point in time, that was God's promise to Israel. You still should humble yourself. You still should pray. You still should fast. But like, it doesn't, there's not a promise that God's going to change America because you do those four things. It was a promise to Israel. That was helpful for me to hear. I was one of those people using it incorrectly. I was the one who was claiming things that weren't mine to claim. So I've been there. I've done that. And when I see other people do it, I, I cringe, but I don't want you to be the people that do that. I want you to now know better. Okay? Matt? Can you give us an example of how a verse like that would be beneficial to the church today? So that way we don't totally cut out the Old Testament. Like if you were leading a prayer service, would you ever use that verse? How would you use that verse? So whenever we jump into an Old Testament narrative, there's several layers that we can draw from to learn from. Uh, this is like your Old Testament three-layered cake. The top level is you're always learning something about God. So here we learn something about the Lord, the way he treated Jabez, the way he responded to Jabez. Also, as you're spending time in the Old Testament, you learn something about the history of Israel, how God's working with his people, which is important. And then also you get time in these little micro-narratives where you learn something about Joseph. You learn something about Jabez. You learn something about Samson. And when you watch the way they work and the, watch the way they live, it's interesting to learn characteristics about them, how God worked with them, how God was patient with them, how God loved them. So you're able to pick things you learn from all those different layers. But I probably wouldn't use this to teach on prayer. But I would use this to teach on how God blesses his people. And he might bless you too, but it might be in a very different way. For example, Philippians, Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So if I'm a football player, I mean, this is what they all do, right? Right before they go to kick their field goal, they just acknowledge that promise. And they think that means the ball's going through those uprights. If you know it in context, what does it really mean? Contentment. So that means that even if I miss this field goal, Jesus is enough for me. So to claim that promise, 
is almost like saying, Lord, this might be a great opportunity for me to miss a field goal so that you can show me that you're all that I need. Because that's really what it's all about. Whether I have a lot or I have nothing, I have Jesus and that's enough. That's what Philippians 4.13 teaches. It's just we don't usually use it that way. But that's why it's important to know the verses before and after and the context. Okay, super, super important. Yes? Is it possible that uh, some Christian reading that Jabez passage could feel impressed that this was God speaking to him about this matter and therefore went to prayer and the Lord blessed his life in a tremendous way just like he did Jabez? So can so can can someone with like an honest heart read that? Maybe not knowing about interpretation, uh, go to God, pray like that, and be blessed by God. What do you think? Yeah, God doesn't wait for you to have a certain level of understanding about interpretation in His Word before He blesses you and just works in your life in amazing ways. But now that you know it, you're kind of responsible for it. I mean. Like that whole time I spent in college praying that God would humble me and put me on my face, he did that over and over again. America didn't change that much, but I was radically changed. So God totally used that verse in tons of ways in my life. And maybe that guy's borders increased, whoever that was. But it doesn't mean that's going to happen. There's no promise of that. God can do whatever he wants, though. And God can bless faith however he wants. And God knows best. Um, good question. All right, things. So here's some helpful tools. Again, it's really nice. I mean, there are the books right there that I would suggest. If you just want to know a little bit more about what we were talking about, grab those, put those on your shelf. Things to remember. The Bible itself has an interesting use of interpretation. So all the things I just said, Jesus doesn't necessarily adhere to any of the rules I just said. Sometimes when Jesus quotes the Old Testament, he just does it however he wants. Like he'll allude to it, he'll reference it, or he'll quote it directly, and he'll feel like he's just pulling it out of context. But he's allowed to. He understands why those words were written. He understands how they were put together. And when he does it, it means it's equally inspired in the way he chose to interpret it and describe it and to use it. He has the ability to do that. Oftentimes in the Old Testament, there's a greater meaning to it that's found in the New Testament. Jesus gets all that. You and I don't always catch all of those. So Jesus has the freedom to interpret however he wants. Don't feel the liberty to be able to interpret with the same authority that Jesus interprets. Just because Jesus can pick a passage and give it meaning that you and I may not have gotten on our own doesn't mean you and I can go into the Old Testament, pick a passage, and give it meaning that seems to be arbitrary, not connected to the verses around it. We don't get to interpret like Jesus interprets. That's a dangerous, dangerous thing to do. Um, Let's go to the next page. Let's go to page 19. So as we're reading God's word, we just have to know a couple things. Um, one, like when it comes to the chronology of Jesus or when it comes to the, the order at which things land in John or the order that stories land in Luke, Luke is very topical. Like it almost seems like Luke is connecting it to where Jesus is more than a timeline. Uh, Matthew does it in a different way. Mark, the, like almost all of Mark is dedicated to Jesus on the cross. So he starts off at this rush, like, this happened, then this happened, then this happened, then this happened, then this happened, and here's the cross, is how Mark feels. So with that intentionality, there's certain things that Mark emphasized, and there certain things that Matthew emphasized, there's certain things that they therefore had to de-emphasize. So if I lined up some teachings from Jesus in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, 
all the wording will not be the same. They're all Jesus' words, but they don't all quote all the exact same words in the same order. Does that mean it's inaccurate? No. God has ordained it to be exactly the way that it is. With Luke's intentionality of compiling information, it was stated just the way God wanted it to be stated in Luke and in Matthew and in Mark, even though if I line them all up, and you can do this on your Bible app, they're not exactly the same. Okay, so I'm suggesting to you don't be nervous when you see that happen. It's actually really fun to study the different ways. You'll see why Mark is emphasizing something that Luke isn't emphasizing. As you understand their point of view and why they're doing what they're doing, why they're quoting what they're quoting. Uh, divergent parallel accounts. Four perspectives with four intents. This is the four Gospels. With four audiences and four different goals. It would be like... Um, a car accident happening somewhere, one person's over there, one person's over there, one person's inside the building, one person's in a car, in one of the cars that got into the accident. You would just describe things in different ways depending on your perspective and your intention and who you were describing the accident to. If you're talking to a friend or you're talking to a police officer, it might change the way you describe what happened. That's what's going on with the four Gospels, four perspectives, four different audiences. Okay, this is... so. There are people that will say, doesn't the Bible contradict itself? Aren't there errors? Like, James will emphasize that faith without works is dead faith. Paul will say, your works have nothing to do with your faith. Well, are those contradictions? Here's a really good book. It's called When Critics Ask by Norman Geisler. It addresses like almost every single one of those. So if you ever just want, and I'm sure you can just Google the, Google the verse as well, and the verse will come up and they'll give you explanations. But this is a really good book that handles a lot of those things. I'm gonna, all these are just set over here if you want to look at them. Um, when, for example, like maybe in the Old Testament, you'll have periods where you have one of the Kings and one of the Chronicles kind of overlap stories. One might say 79,329 soldiers were on this side of the battle. And the other author says there are about 80,000 troops. Well, is one right and is one wrong? Like, is there that many or is there that many? Well, it's kind of the intention of the author answers that question. One was trying to give you an exact number. The other one wasn't. He was just telling you there's about 80,000. About 80, so when I leave here and somebody says, how many people came to class? I'll say maybe about 20. And then Sheree will say, Mike, there was like 26. Okay, so depending whether it's you're asking me or you're asking Cherie, we'll give you different numbers, but really not one of us right, the other one's wrong. I'm just giving you an approximation, and you know that. She's giving you an exact number because that's what she does. Okay, so we have to view it differently. So it's not necessarily a contradiction. You just have to understand the intention of the author. This is important. Infallible and inerrant don't no longer mean the same thing. They used to. 20 years ago, if, you, if someone said, I believe in the infallibility of Scripture, that meant something. For me, that meant we're on the same team. Now, when somebody says, I believe in the infallibility of Scripture, what they can be saying is, I believe whenever the Bible talks about spiritual things, I think it's right. But whenever it talks about anything else, I'm not sure if it's right. Inerrancy means, I believe whenever the Bible talks about anything, the Bible is true and accurate. So you want to hear someone say, inerrant. If they just say infallible, but they won't say inerrant, you might be playing on two different teams in terms of how you view scripture. And that's changed. It was almost like it was a word that we used to use in conservative Christianity, and the moderates came and grabbed it and kind of took it in another direction. So that used to be our word. 
It's no longer our word. People have kind of taken that word from us, and it means something else now. Does that make sense? We jumped something at one point. Commentaries. Is it helpful to have commentaries? What do you think? Is it helpful to have commentaries? Do you need commentaries? I mean, you have the Spirit of God. Do you need a commentary? Gary does. It depends whether it's some verse that I'm really struggling with the basic mm-hmm. meaning of. It might get me thinking about it, but just because the commentary is there doesn't mean that I... It, it's, it's not the word. It's what somebody thinks of. That's true. So I would say it's certainly not necessary, but boy, can it be helpful. Yes. Certainly it's not necessary, but boy, can it be helpful. So if you only had room on your shelf for one commentary... This is the New Testament volume, and there's also an Old Testament volume. It'll be sitting up here if you want to see it. It's by a guy named John Walverd. This would just be like a Dallas Theological Seminary type commentary on... It has a little bit about every verse in here. It's really helpful. It's really succinct. It's really easy. Great little resource. There's also an Old Testament volume as well. Walverd, W-A-L-V-O-O-R-D. John Walverd. If you want a little bit more, there's a series by Tyndale which is really simple. Like this is Luke, so it's a little bit bigger than that. This is Deuteronomy, so it's a little bit bigger than that. And you can just buy the sets. This is number five, and this is number three in the New Testament. Just line these puppies up on your shelf, looks real nice. And you just have a go-to set that you can use whenever you want. This would be a very usable commentary. If you ever wanted something a little bit more difficult or critical, come talk to me. I can give you a whole list of them, okay? There's a whole bunch. Uh, But these would be really accessible commentaries. Okay. When I, I'm on tape. They're good commentaries. I just would have additional commentaries. That would not be my go-to commentary series. When I moved here, somebody gave me a set, but I probably would have never purchased the set. I think they're decent, but oftentimes commentators are using lots of different resources. Vernon tends to use, he doesn't use as many resources as what most of them do, if that makes sense. Like before I write something down in this book, I check multiple places. Vernon's is based off a lot of his sermons as well. It's a good commentary series. I would just use it in addition to other ones. How'd I do? <laughs> you made, made you nervous, Darwin, didn't it? <laughs> All right. Let's talk about authoritative. So if the Bible is iner- inerrant, which means it's God's word and we know it's right and accurate, we need to live completely under its authority. What it says matters. What it says changes everything about what we think, what we do, and how we act, and what we believe. So, just here's some verses talking about the authoritative nature of God's Word. When Jesus is talking about the Old Testament, he declares it being authoritative. In Matthew 5, if you remember, it's where he says, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. Every stroke of the pen, every piece of it is there on purpose, and it will last forever. When the world burns away, God's word will still stand. But then Jesus goes in and talks about some of the details of the Old Testament. In chapter 19 of Matthew, verses 3 through 6, he references Adam and Eve as historical people. As historical people. So sometimes people look at the Old Testament and say they're fables and fairy tales and myth and legend. Jesus looked at the Old Testament and said these were actual people who did exactly what was said of them in the Old Testament. He references the flood. There's a lot of people in a lot of different places that say the flood never happened. Jesus references it as historical, as it happened. 
John chapter 5, verses 45 through 47, he talks about the authorship of Moses. When I was in seminary, I had to waste, I must use the word waste, I had to waste a ton of time going through and arguing why certain parts of the Old Testament were written by Moses and not just a compilation of, of letters that they found that were really, really old. Because the Bible itself is under attack. And a lot of circles are trying to say that Moses didn't write sections, David didn't write sections, so if they can convince you that the authorship isn't real, then they convince you the words aren't real. So I, I just spent a lot of time learning how to argue against those things. Instead of doing that, instead of spending that time, if Jesus says Moses wrote it, Moses wrote it. We're done, right? I just, there was three seminary classes. You just took them all by reading one verse. You're done with that. Well done. Check mark. Uh, I think this one's good. Matthew 12, 40. Jonah and the fish. If you're skeptical, that's a hard one. So you're saying a dude jumped into a fish and the fish like functioned like a, a nasty hotel room for three days and he dropped him off someplace. Like, are you sure? Jesus is like, yeah, Jonah and the fish. Yeah, yes. So Jesus references it with authority and references it as historical. We can feel good about it. The whole thing is historical. It really is what it says that it is. Uh, we can have confidence. Uh, those other statements on the other side, again, 2 Timothy 3.16, we mentioned it. Everything is God-breathed. Hebrews 4.12, God's word is living, is active. 1 Corinthians 14.37, Paul says that he's writing the Lord's commands. Paul references his own words and says that he's writing the Lord's commands. 2 Thessalonians 3.14, there's, Paul speaks of the authority of his words, that it has to be taken um, with authority, as though coming from God himself. So, if the Bible comes from God, and the Word of God holds authority, what about when God just talks to me? How should I handle that? Somebody comes up, or, or something you've struggled with or thought through, does God just talk to me sometimes, give me particular rever revelation, words just for me? Does God do that? Words just for you? Well, if He's talking to you... We'll say it's not a proclamation, but God's, God's just talking to you. Like, how do you handle that? If someone says that, or if you feel like that's you, is it okay? Is it not okay? Is it, how, do you, how do you figure that out? It lines up with Scripture. Yes. So we take anything that we think is like an, an intuition or a feeling or a thought that just kind of comes up in our heart or mind, and we're like, is God pushing me to do something? Is, God, is this God talking to me? I always take God's word and whatever popped into my head, I put it on top and say, does it match up? If it doesn't match up, it's not from God. If it doesn't match up, it's not from God. The Holy Spirit is active in our life. The Holy Spirit will push us. Like, if, if you're sensing, maybe I should talk to my neighbor. Maybe I should take the opportunity to get to know them so I can share the gospel with them. Yeah, that's probably God pushing you. That's probably not coming from you. That's probably coming from God's word and God's spirit at work in you. So it's something that comes in the form of conviction over a sin or a push towards doing something that God's word tells you to do. Yeah, that probably is the Lord. If it's something weird or awkward that doesn't really go along with God's word, be nervous. Is it God's word? Is it God's spirit? Or is it gas? I mean, did you just eat something funny? I mean, you can't always tell what it is, okay? So you just have to pay attention, okay? If you have a weird feeling, a weird thought, or you're making weird noises, it might not be because of the Lord. You have to pay attention. You have to be careful. 
And if somebody tells you, this is what God told me. I've had this happen to me. God told me that you need to do this. Okay, well, tell him to tell me that and show me where it is in God's word. I just, you just have to be aware. There are strange people in the world, okay? We've had situations in this church where people have said that God told them really weird things. Some of them are not in our church anymore. Let's keep going. Okay, should I rely upon my internal sense of right and wrong? Are you a good litmus test for right and wrong? How would you answer that? Thank you. Okay. <laughs> All right. All right. So same answer. Same answer. Um, there's a day, Lord willing, when you spend so much time in God's word, you know it so well that your internal sense of right and wrong and the external writings of God's words kind of are the same. That you just, you know when you're going outside of the bounds that God's given you, okay? But it's not a bad idea to always be checking. It's not a bad idea to always be checking. How is it possible that the Bible has been used to abuse and to enslave people? It has. It has. The Crusades, nasty stuff. Slavery, nasty stuff. A lot of those people reference God's word in the process of doing terrible things. How is that possible? Taken out of context. Oh my goodness, yes. So is our conversation right now important? Yes. When God's word is taken out of context or misrepresented, it's oftentimes done for a play of power, which usually turns into some form of abuse. There are people on TV right now who are using God's word to try to help you make them rich. Yes, it's true, okay? They look like, I mean, they'll talk in a way it sounds like you really need to send them money. And then they get on their private plane, they fly back to their house and hope that you give them money, okay? Like, that is happening all the time. My sweet grandmother, who's no longer with us, she would watch those people and we'd have to beg her to stop giving them money, okay? Grandma, you can barely feed your cats. You don't need to send this person any more money. They have their own plane, they live in a mansion, they don't need any more of your money, okay? So those things are really happening. You probably know people who've been affected by that. The last question on there. What if God's word disagrees with cultural norms or standards? So culture is always shifting. God's word is always staying the same. So what happens when culture starts to shift? How do we know, how do we know when to adopt something from culture, when to challenge something from culture, and when to confront something in culture? How do we know which response is appropriate? Okay, okay. Use other words, though. <laughs> Explain it in a different way. Let me give you an example. Smartphones. The culture's gone to where everyone has a smartphone. What do you do with that? Do you have one? Do you have one? Okay, you've adopted that. All right. Oh, okay, you're showing them to me, so you have one. Uh, so is there any area where we need to challenge with that? Yeah, what you can do with it. What you choose to do with it. We should challenge that. How about your 12-year-old son using Snapchat and just saying yes to everybody who wants to friend him? I'm confronting that, right? Right? I've got a 14-year-old son. Would he do that on the street? What's that? Would he do that on the street? Uh, would he let him do that on the street? No. no, no, I would not let him do that on the street. So there's times when we adopt things because they're amoral. Like it's not right, it's not wrong to have a smartphone. But what you choose to do with it could be really dangerous. So sometimes you have to challenge it. And when it goes too far, you have to confront it and stop it. Okay? So you just have to be aware of all those different aspects of a changing culture all around you. God's word will help you know what's amoral, what needs to be challenged, and what needs to be confronted. Sometimes we do that. We confront abortion. 
Okay, we can, certain things we just confront. Okay, any questions about that? And that's why we're not all Amish. We don't just automatically say if culture does it, we're not going to do it. If you want to build a house and you call the Amish, they're still capitalists, okay? They'll show up and you'll pay them and they'll build you a house, all right? That's true. They're gonna come on a horse and buggy because for some reason that's not okay, but they'll take your money, okay? That's a good thing, I understand that. But so, like, it's hard to pick and choose and it's, and it's a struggle. So looking at the top of page 20, we devote ourselves to knowing God's word. What are some examples for you of next steps you need to take to become more devoted to God's word? Give me some examples of some next steps that you have taken or you feel like you should take to be more devoted to God's word. Yeah, doing a small group study. Good. What else? Hmm. Yeah, hopefully this is helping with that. So when you are reading, reading it by taking these classes, you know that, that you're doing it correctly to the best of your ability. It always helps me to have a place where I feel comfortable reading. I just need to have a place. Like, this is my place. I have my books. I have my place. For me, I need to turn on music. When I turn on music, everything else gets shut off, and that's my place. It helps to have a time of day. For me, it helps to have a plan. I'm not good at just randomly reading. Like, it helps me to have a plan, okay? It might help you to have a plan. Uh, what about accountability? That's helpful, isn't it? Other people knowing what you're working on and asking you how you're doing. So if it's authoritative, if it's inerrant, we need to commit ourselves to it. To say I live under its authority but I don't spend time in it, that doesn't really work, okay? So both need to be important, both need to be true. Ezra, Ezra said this, in chapter 7, verse 10 of Ezra, it says, For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord, and to practice it, and to teach his statutes and the ordinances in Israel. I love that. He has set his heart to study. He has set his heart to study. So if you poked his heart, what mode was it in? It was in study God's word mode. All right? Like, he set his heart to study God's word. So how should this affect your prayer life? For me, one thing I've prayed my whole life, like even when, just I remember even in eighth and ninth grade, God, as I pray, as I spend time in your word, help me to understand it and just to remember it. Okay, when it comes to a math test, I oftentimes never could remember what I was supposed to do. But when it came to God's word, it's something I prayed for over and over again, oftentimes God just helps me remember it. I can't remember anything else. But for, like, I'll forget your name, but oftentimes I'll remember this. I think God loves to honor those little types of prayer requests. Okay, so ask him, if you want to know God's word better, Lord, when I open your word today, let whatever I read stick to my heart, stick to my mind, and change my life. Like, pray for that, plead for that. That's worth fasting over and asking God for. God loves answering prayers like that. I've seen him do it. Um, so there's a couple questions here that I'm going to let you kind of answer on your own. Let's do one more hard one in our last two minutes. Does the Old Testament have authority over the New Testament believer? In what ways yes, in what ways no, and her previous answer won't count, so you have to say something else. I like your answer, it just doesn't work for this question. So what do we do with the Old Testament in the life of a New Testament believer? Mm -hmm. um, I mean, 
you have to refer back to that, plain and simple. So why wouldn't, I mean, it's not authoritative, it is authoritative when it points back to it and gives you no other direction. Okay, so when it references it and reiterates it, we should live that out. Is that what you're saying? Mm -hmm. Good. What else? I had a person once explain to me about revenge and talked about the Old Testament hmm. eye for an eye. And I came back and said that Jesus said forgive. Turn the other cheek instead of an eye for an eye. Yeah, so some of that changed a little bit. Jesus changed a little bit of that. We're no longer under the law. Okay. So do any of those laws still apply? Ten Commandments for sure. What did Jesus do with the Ten Commandments? He fulfilled them and he what? The Sermon on the Mount, you think the Ten Commandments are hard to live out? Jesus goes like to the very heart of every single one of those commandments. This says don't kill. This says don't even say in your heart that you don't like your brother. Like this says don't commit adultery. If you look at someone the wrong way, you've already committed adultery. So in some cases we can say, well, you know, certain laws like you're, you're allowed to eat pig now, by the way. I don't know if you knew that. You can eat pigs now, okay? So that's all right. Uh, I think we, we, like tattoos, I mean, that's a good question. But um, when it comes to like the Ten Commandments, Jesus says live that out, not just outwardly, but live that out inwardly. Like the commandments actually get more difficult to live out, not easier to live out. What are some other thoughts? Still got a minute. What about some of those festivals that the Old Testament tells you that you're supposed to be like celebrating the, the festival of unleavened bread? How are you, how are you doing with that? Why, why aren't you doing it? That's for the Jewish people. Okay. So some of them are, some of the commandments are, we actually call them like, like governmental, governmental laws. There's ones that are based on like ritualistic laws. We even call them cultic laws, depending on like which book you're referencing. But they're designed for the nation of Israel for a period of time. And those are no longer applicable to you. You don't have to go to the tabernacle and do this or that. You don't have to sacrifice this or that. There's certain festivals you don't have to participate in or celebrate because that was for Israel at a point in time. They were a people on a hill. Now God says, go and make disciples. Then it was come and believe. Like they came and saw Israel living in a particular way at a particular time. So God gave them laws to make them stand out amongst the peoples. A lot of those laws don't apply anymore. Okay, But ones that speak to God's character, that speak to man's sinfulness, those are things we have to consider. If they're reiterated, then they're as good as the New Testament law. Okay, So some of those are easy and some of those are hard. If we had t 10 more minutes, I'd throw out a bunch of hard ones and we just try to tackle them. But we don't have 10 more minutes. So we'll just tackle each other later. But uh, let me close this in prayer. Thank you guys for coming. Father, thank you for each person here. I thank you for this discussion. Uh, grow us, change us, allow us to fall more in love with your word as we spend time with your word, as we interact with your word. May it stick to our hearts. May it stick to our minds. May we teach it in a way that's accurate and true. In Christ's name, amen.